You're listening to Snap Listings, the podcast, because everything happens somewhere. We are here with Michael Barton. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. We are going to talk today about the 47th Street Diamond District in New York. Right. Give us a little bit of a background and why we're sitting here in the Snap Listings podcast studio. Sure, thank you. Um, so I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. I was born and raised a good Mormon boy, mm-hmm. proud to say. <laughs> uh, and then I moved to LA and did all those things I wasn't supposed to, and that was an eye-opener. Um, but I had uh, gone to the University of Utah for about a year, and then a friend of mine and I just decided uh, to move to LA. And shortly after we moved there, he became interested in the GIA, the Gemological Institute of America. They have a uh, a location there in Santa Monica, one here in New York, where they do all their training and they do all their lab work. Um, and we just concocted this idea to go into the diamond business because right at the time, diamonds were now being considered a collectible investment. And so it's only a six-month certification course, and he went uh, before I did. And we met with a couple of other friends and came up with this business plan. And it was really kind of outrageous. I mean, we actually opened an office on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Wow, your first office was on <laughs> and Rodeo leased, Drive? Yes, and leased um, antique furniture and, and recruited people. And back in the day, it was really kind of a boiler room operation. And for me to get some experience in that, because I, I really didn't have any business experience. I was just and right out of What uh, was GIA. the business? Well, it was the diamond investment business. Okay. So we were connected with uh, diamond wholesalers who had gem quality, meaning GIA certified diamonds, and then we would market to financial planners and investors. That was our market. Oh. So it was all a, a question of how do you reach them. And again, back in, in that time, when we're talking about early 80s, um, you were given these, they were called Dun & Bradstreet cards of professionals like attorneys and dentists and mm-hmm. doctors, and you were cold calling. So there was actually a movie called Boiler Room. <laughs> That was very yeah. accurate. I wasn't really cut out to be a boiler room type of person. I mean, right, because it's, it's, it's obviously, like cold call sales. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very uncomfortable. You're trying to get past a secretary and get to the person. Um, I eventually did get to a couple of people, but the numbers were staggering. I mean, the, you probably go through thousands of calls to get one or two legitimate leads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, But I, I learned that in the morning. I was working at this one uh, diamond investment company and then coming back to our business in the afternoon and kind of you know applying what we learned there and we hired a team of about six people and we were doing um, sit down dinners and presentations at the Beverly Hills Hotel and Beverly Wilshire and we just started to make a few sales when we made the smartest decision that I think any smart startup can make now we got out where we could still pay the bills mm. I mean I know it's very fashionable to operate in the red now but that's mm. only if you've got startup money to keep right. running you <laughs> And we didn't. It's way um, cooler to bootstrap, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's still cooler today to bootstrap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we learned more than we earned, which is not unusual for a startup. Mm-hmm. And I received an offer from one of our suppliers who um, also, just by coincidence, happened to have a jewelry business and diamond investment business in Salt Lake, my hometown. I went back there for a few months. And then I moved to New York uh, to open his diamond office. Um, and this was a very unique situation in that he had a partnership with a company out of South Africa that produced their own 
that, that mine their own diamonds. Wow, so um, they control the entire supply chain. Right, and it's very odd because, as you probably know, De Beers controls 90% of the world's production. We didn't know that. I did not know that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, uh, they control 90% of the world's production, and so they're the ones that really regulate prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way the diamond market works is that uh, De Beers holds what they call sites 10 times a year, uh-huh. and they have... Um, I think about currently probably between 90 and 100 different site holders that are invited to come to used to be in London but now I think it's in uh, either Belgium or possibly um, Botswana Uh, so they come 10 times a year and they're given a package of loose uncut diamonds with a price on them what and you basically either take it or leave it you can kind of quibble over a stone or two but that's how it works wait so that's how raw diamonds are distributed that's yeah. That's really the beginning of the vertical supply chain for the diamond world. So a hundred people show up. Hundred companies, yeah. Hundred companies yeah. show up and are given a bag. Right. Of loose raw diamonds. Right. With a with a price tag. Now, what are right. loose uncut diamonds? Are you right. saying just like a chunk of like a big chunk of diamonds or like? Yeah, they're like that? little crystals of all different shapes and colors. And De Beers decides what the price of that bag is. Correct. And you can either take it or leave it. Correct. They're controlling ninety percent of it, so they're essentially just controlling the price of diamonds. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, and they so, also does, does that. And there's no other loose loose diamonds that are in the market, so they're they're completely they're completely controlling the supply. Yeah, I mean there was um, and creating. Well, they, I mean, they're a monopoly. Right. And that's yeah. why they can't actually operate in the United States. Mm. They can't open a business. That being said, there is a De Beers on Fifth Avenue. I'm not sure how they wrangled that. Mm-hmm. There but, is. Yeah. There they is. They opened a store there, but I'm not sure, you know, what the relationship is. Mm. Um, but, yeah, since they control supply, they're able to regulate prices depending upon demand. So yeah. it's, a, it's a very fundamental business model. Uh, the only thing outside of that, outside of that 90%, uh, were what uh, were called blood diamonds, which, you know, there was a movie about it, the whole thing, about 10 years ago. Um, and yeah. I was like, oh yeah, the blood diamonds come to New York too. Was that wrong? Um, well, it, it's down to maybe 1% oh. of total diamond production, That's, so it's not really a factor. We want to get it down to zero, but yeah. 1% is better yeah. than I mean, there's not 10. much you can do in, in some of these... Um, you know, war-torn countries in southwestern Africa mm-hmm. and in Sierra Leone. I mean, once they take over uh, an area that's got diamond mining production, then they'll use that to finance insurgencies, and that's what, you know, are called conflict or blood diamonds. But it's been um, it's been shut down as much as possible by the UN, so it's not mm-hmm. really much of a factor. So it's really just De Beers, mm-hmm. and they regulate the market, and the market doesn't have that much swing per se. It did back when we got in and this whole new segment of diamonds as investments just really, you know, blew a hole in the traditional model. And why did diamonds become an investment class? Um, I'm not sure what drove collectibles as now becoming uh, attractive investments, you know, antique furniture and Mm -hmm. vintage cars and, and things like that. Uh, but diamonds just suddenly became something that uh, in, uh, financial planners and investors were now interested in. And ultimately, that didn't really work out. But in the short Uh-oh. term, 
Um, one carat D flawless, which is the standard in the industry, um, the wholesale price shot what is from. That? Can you explain what a one carat? <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. Means? And I brought a little. I, I'm sure you can't oh, wow. see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, show us, show the audience. Okay, but so for your reference, this is a, a, a GIA certificate. So the GIA is the gold standard of diamond certification. Mm -hmm. They don't do appraisals. They don't do any valuations, but they they. Um, they measure roughly 17 different characteristics of loose diamonds mm -hmm. um, and that will ultimately tell you what the value is if you can translate those characteristics. So um, they're the world's authority and so if you have a GIA certificate you can easily uh, determine what the price is if you know what to look for. I mean the seven basic characteristics are cut, clarity, color, um, finish, polish, symmetry, and then uh, what's called fluorescence. A diamond's job is to reflect and refract light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you get direct reflection or you get a refraction, it breaks up into color. So um, someone determined the, um, the, the, the best angles for which a diamond should be cut to, mm -hmm. to do that. So if it's not cut to those proportions, say for example, if the diamond's too deep, it's gonna look a little bit too dark, or if it's mm -hmm. too shallow, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna wash out. So it should be within these ideal proportions. That's what cut is all about. Mm. So how well it refracts. Yeah, how what it what it does with light right. is, is what cut determines. Clarity um, is a determination made by examining the diamond under a binocular microscope at ten power. So you don't want to go past that, or you're gonna you know you'll find things that you wouldn't see at ten power. But that's mm -hmm. the standard. And it's based on the number of inclusions that are found inside of the stone. And what I recommend in terms of the best value is if you're shopping for a loose diamond or if it's mounted um, and if it's certified, uh, a VS2 or SI1 Clarity is going to look the same to the eye as a flawless diamond. Wow. It's only when you start to get under magnification that you're going to start seeing things with the naked eye. So for most people, that to me seems to make sense. Mm -hmm. Now if you really want to pay for a higher quality stone, which some people do. And what know, would be the price difference between like a VS2 and a Flawless? Um, I don't know what today's price would be, but uh, typically, well I'll give you an example actually what today's price would be. So I, I looked at some prices um, before I came over this morning mm -hmm. and uh, it's remarkable how, how narrow um, the price band has become so for a um, an SI1i. Okay, so slightly which is, again, included. Is on that, it's on that border, yeah. Slightly included. And we didn't talk about color, so let's talk about color really quick. It's oh. on a, it's on a uh, alphabetical grade, but it doesn't begin at A. It begins at D. Mm -hmm. And so as you'll notice on the scale, D through E is considered colorless. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I just want to clear up that there's no such thing as a white diamond. That's a misnomer. Mm -hmm. We're just talking about. Uh, various different shades of yellow really mm. so you don't really notice any color to the eye until you get down to about the I or J range in the color range mm -hmm. and then when you start going further down you can see you know increasing tints of yellow and the reason those stones are less expensive is just because they're more common right it's mm. not necessarily an aesthetic you know valuation but um, so again once you get down to like HI that's where I would start and VS2 SI1 in clarity because to the eye it's going to look the same as D flawless. Whoa. Okay, so the best 
most expensive diamond is a D flawless. Correct. And you're saying that which one? The H? Um, yeah, H to I color. Okay, so H to I, which is one, two, three, four, five levels down. Right. Five levels down, and then also slightly included imperfections. Yeah, that's also um, a common misnomer. Um, the the I in in SI and I one on two or three is inclusion as opposed to imp, and, you know, oh, imperfection. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how that got started. It, it's not really, you know, it, I don't think it does the branding of a diamond that good to refer to the, in terms of their imperfections. Imperfection, yeah, yeah imperfections. <laughs> but it somehow uh, gets bandied, bandied, yeah, so bandied what, what about. So what would you say your expertise is when it comes to diamonds and things? Is it just like all around or is there something if I showed you a diamond right now, you'd be like, nah, that, that color is off. Yeah, so my job uh, when I started in New York is I would get a... A parcel of mm -hmm. cut and polished loose diamonds mm -hmm. every six or eight weeks mm -hmm. and I would grade them okay. and then the ones that were of gem quality meaning mm -hmm. you know HI color SI one clarity and up I would take to GIA and get them certified and then I would trade all of them on the wholesale market on 47th Street okay. um, so a key distinction when we're talking about 47th Street is there are really two fundamentally different worlds that are stratified um, I had nothing to do with what you see on the street level. That's all the retail yeah. of 47th Street, of which there are 25 or 2,600 different retailers on the street level. Is uh, that the highest concentration of diamond retailers? Probably. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a diamond district in LA, but it's much more uh, diffuse. Mm -hmm. And there are in Antwerp and Belgium and mm -hmm. London. But I don't think there's anything as concentrated as 47th Street. Mm -hmm. So it's there's about 4,000 registered businesses in total, mm -hmm. uh, and 2,500 of those are retailers. But all of my business took place above or behind the retail mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. And the center of the diamond trading world really is the Diamond Dealers Club on oh, 47th Street. Oh, it's a club. Yeah. Oh. Um, were you a card-carrying member? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not getting in. Uh, <laughs> That was another unusual characteristic. I never could have just broken into the diamond trade without having connections and without being Jewish. Okay. That oh. was really the common bond in mm -hmm. the trade. I mean, the the business itself was started by communities of uh, Orthodox Jewish people, and it really strengthened uh, during the war, where a lot of, of Orthodox Jews in the diamond business had to flee mm -hmm. Europe mm -hmm. and came to New York. Oh. And that really and they brought their expertise the business. here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the diamond trade itself started in New York um, in about the mid-18, early 1800s, and it started on, on Main Lane down in the financial district. Mm -hmm. oh. And so, you know, that's where you went if you really wanted to get a, a good diamond or if yeah. you wanted to get jewelry. And then in the early 1920s, as the financial district started to take shape, it drove retail out because it just wasn't cost-effective to, mm -hmm. to pay those prices anymore. And I'm not sure if it was a city planner or or who else stepped up, but they actually started um, building facilities in what was then the, the kind of the extended garment district in Midtown for a diamond district on 47th Street. Oh, so it's planned. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So that started in the 1920s, and by 1941 it became really well established. And, um, and, and so what happens up in the, in the wholesale parts of the, of the Diamond District? What's happening there? Oh, yeah. So to come back to the Diamond Dealers Club, 
um, mm. and and uh, what makes that work. So uh, they even have their own synagogue, the Diamond Dealers Club. What? So. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and you so have I, to be a card carrying member of the Diamond Dealers Club in order you to go have to the synagogue. To, you have to go through a very lengthy process of, of first someone has to propose your membership, and then you have to go someone through the club. Exactly. To the club. Yeah. Exactly. And does the does this uh, access to the synagogue is it included with your club access? Good question. I don't know. Um, I'd like to get married there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the venue. I would like that to be where I get married. Like, that is my temple. That's, that's, that's the dream. But that's where the majority of that first level of, of the vertical of the business took place because they would trade primarily um, loose, cut, and polished, but there was also some trading of rough diamonds as well, depending upon, you know, the their ultimate value so you'd go to the club and people would just meet up and what do you have what are you looking for it was a very organic environment mm -hmm. and there would just be dealing going on all day mm -hmm. and it was a private elevator that just went up to that that floor of um, it was, I think it was a 30 West cool. 47 and Eric was saying a fun fact about you were saying the story of uh, back in the day it would just be based on your work. You know what I mean? Like, here, take these diamonds and, and go ahead and try to sell them. And if not, you bring them back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's what I was referring to when I said that the, the uh, Jewish faith had made this a common bond that really worked in this business yeah. environment. Um, so, and and I, you know, had to participate in that. Not that I wouldn't, but um, that's the way business was done. So if I was buying or selling, mm -hmm. once you came to an agreed upon price, and you gave your mazal, mm -hmm. you'd say, I mean, traditionally it's a mazal and baraka, which is luck and blessing. Once you gave that, yeah. that was it. The that deal was done and somebody, and somebody was gonna pay on the price agreed to. Mm -hmm. And since there was this tight-knit community, if mm -hmm. you ever went back on your word, you were out. So it shame. really- Shame, yes. yeah. shame, yes. Shame, 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 shame. That's incredible. So um, it really made the business work and you could depend upon that, you know? What's and, it like being in a room? I know you, you may not have been in the club, but what's it like being in a room with these big wig diamond traders? Is it just a lot of, yeah. a lot of ego? Is it a lot of, uh, or is it just more of a, like everybody's just there for business kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I would go to some wholesalers and take my goods, which is also an interesting aspect of this business. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't even think twice about it and you're walking around with, you know, three or $400,000 worth yeah. of, of uncut or, or excuse me cut and polished stones in a little leather envelope that's mm -hmm. inside your um, sport coat mm -hmm. so it, I, there was a learning curve for me I had what I call nice guy syndrome mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know why but I was felt pressured to be a nice guy and and you know make a deal mm -hmm. <laughs> not realizing yeah. that it's not personal you've got to take yourself out of the equation yeah. so I probably ended up giving away you know a little bit more money than I should have in the first six months until yeah. I kind of divorce myself from the process yeah. and uh, realize, you know, this is, every deal's a negotiation and uh, I'm completely free and clear of that now. I'm yeah. a very good deal maker and I don't even get my emotions That's amazing. It's, it's interesting because the whole um, sales process and kind of the, the way that you have a product and you have different brokers that want to go and have and have potential clients it's very similar to the real estate industry it is mm. yeah in no, a sense it's no. both high value long high value highly considered long-term purchases right mm. and you and there is a level of 
expertise needed in order to make the right decision. The intricacies of location, future, the, the build-up and that kind of stuff, it's very similar to the kind of the grading on, on that right. kind of stuff as well. Yeah, and I was thinking about that correlation earlier today, uh, the similarities between valuing real estate and, and say, diamonds. Um, and you can compare those two assets to say gold. Mm -hmm. Gold is gold. It's either 24 karat, 18, 14. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no other variable yeah. other than the, you know, form factor that it comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's ultimately what made diamonds uh, not really work as a long-term collectible per se. Mm -hmm. Is there so many variables that affect the value that it makes the liquidity mm -hmm. much more difficult than something like gold? It's a more risky investment then, though, as well. Yeah, you don't really know where the market's going to go, mm -hmm. um, and you 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 know unless you really understand everything on the certificate, you're not really sure if what you bought is is, is priced right. But the correlation between real estate is that there there are all of these different attributes. You know, there's average housing prices in certain neighborhoods, right. and then each home is going to have different attributes mm -hmm. that determine the ultimate value. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar with a diamond. Mm -hmm. I mean, a diamond, you know, it's it's got a certain size and shape. Those are are fairly common. And then you have to start looking at the individual attributes that determine its ultimate value. Okay, let's say I'm not in any position to do this, but if I was proposing and I was going to buy an engagement ring. Uh, you being an actual expert, what's guaranteeing me? Yes, what do I want to buy uh, for that ring that would that would make the lucky lady say, "Oh gosh, I, I, this is it." <laughs> yeah, and I would say that uh, again. There's a, a corollary here to shopping for real estate mm -hmm. in that there's no specific model that okay. people follow. I mean, for real estate, you kind of determine basically where you want to live, and then mm -hmm. you jump in and start looking around, and, you, and then you start doing comparison shopping. Yeah, it's very much the same now with diamonds you can go online and start doing some comparison shopping mm -hmm. get to know some of the fundamentals that are on the certificate mm -hmm. the, the especially the the top seven yeah and then you can start doing some comparison shopping mm -hmm. so again I, I was mentioning earlier that I went online and I looked at uh, I, I searched and selected for one carat round um, SI1 Clarity Eye Color mm -hmm. and I, I think there were something like 20 or more stones that came up and they varied in price from about 3800 to 4900 mm -hmm. Same size, same mm -hmm. shape, same color, same clarity. Yeah. So that's where you have to start digging. Yeah. So I want to harken back to some stuff that you were talking about earlier because you were mentioning just walking around with a satchel filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of diamonds. You right. know, the, the club with filled with people that are just bringing in these boxes of of diamonds and trading them in this exclusive kind of area in this neighborhood. Do you know of any heists uh, that you can think of? A little bit heist here, or yeah, there must, um, this must have been a target because you're talking about this extreme concentration of these high value gems yeah, in one yeah. area. Was yeah. that a problem, or is you, that something yeah. that they've had to work on? It's it's such a good question, and you'd think that there would be, mm -hmm. uh, but from the very beginning, mm -hmm. um, security has been the the utmost concern mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, when I was even looking at the annual report for the mm -hmm. business improvement district 47th Street that's where the majority of the money goes is mm -hmm. in security, security. Yeah, and, and we're talking about like NSA level yeah. security that's wild um, I mean there's there's more there's a more uh, highly concentrated uh, well let me put it another way it, there, I don't know of another street where there's a more high concentration of hard wealth Mm. than right. on 47th yeah. Street. Exactly. I don't know what the estimations are. It's probably in the tens or perhaps even hundreds of billions. Mm. Uh, At any given time? 
Yeah, and and they do. Um, I think it's currently between thirty-five and forty billion dollars worth of sales. At least that's what the tax record uh, says mm-hmm. uh, annually mm-hmm. off of Forty Seventh Street. Um, so obviously, it's a it could be a huge target. Yeah. But the security is so good, you rarely hear About. of situations. I mean, there have been. I can think of one that occurred three or four years ago where somebody. Um, a team of at least two or three guys, mm-hmm. uh, one or two of which were impersonating FedEx delivery, and somehow they knew, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to be rung into a wholesaler to pick up a package. Mm-hmm. And not only did they pick up that package, but they robbed them of everything else, and it was, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars. That's um, a cinematic experience. Why is so that, not, yeah. I mean, that not a movie yet? <laughs> I don't know. But every wholesaler, and I, I don't know how many people have seen this. I'm not sure how prolific it is or whatever, what other industries have this, but they're all double doors. Uh-huh. So you're buzzed into a vestibule, mm-hmm. and then you either show ID if they don't know you, or you have to give ID. Um, and then once you're cleared, you're buzzed through to the um, either the second security area or the mm-hmm. reception area. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a very effective means of security, but if you're impersonating FedEx, then... Yeah. <laughs> you're going to get through both doors. Or you're going to get out the back. Yeah. So I'm sorry I don't have more glamorous heist stories. That, that, he, that, was, that, was, that was an amazing story. story. That's they probably why they tell us, because FedEx. it sounds like it was successful, which is unfortunate for the yeah. folk. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and the question another thing. Um, how do you think, we're going to call him Big Diamond, how has Big Diamond uh, shaped the landscape of New York City and like... The, the actual physical locations of... of well, I, I don't know how it's affected the city, mm-hmm. uh, but again, certainly from a tax revenue standpoint, I mean, they're bringing in more money than McDonald's yeah. globally, just mm-hmm. from one street. That's incredible. Um, wow. So, yeah, yeah. That, that, what a way to put that as yeah, well. Yeah, that was so that. well put. That's incredible. <laughs> Not that they're similar, but... Yeah, <laughs> it's the but, same yeah, kind of business. 35, 40 billion a year, that's... Yeah. that's for the city as a consumer why would I why would it even why would I even want to go purchase my diamonds at 47th Street like what is it going to do for me if I can just go online um, or I can go to Costco or I can right. walk over to Tiffany's which is this brand name like what is it what what am I getting from 47th Street that's different yeah and there's two sides to that coin one good and, and the other one bad on the good side I'd say there's four pillars of value uh, on 47th Street for New Yorkers. One, it's convenient. Mm-hmm. Two, there there's no place in the world where you're going to get that much selection. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever you're looking for, they're going to have <laughs> in spades. Yeah. yeah. Um, and three, I would say, is price because you've got this uh, concentration of 2,500 retailers all competing. You can't be overpriced because mm-hmm. you won't stay in business. Yeah. And then four, knowledge. If you can find the you know the right retailer that's been in business or the right gemologist has been there for a long time, they should be able to help you make an informed purchase. So those values, if done correctly, are really worthwhile for the consumer. On the flip side of that, 47th Street just doesn't have that sterling of a reputation. You know, when you go on the street, and I, I was there just the other day and I counted, you know, uh, 10 um, hawkers that you know you know just try to pull you into the store and and it, nobody really wants that or needs that you don't no go down there buys, to be hawked yeah or, no one's you know. gonna put make a ten thousand dollar purchase will being, diamond today. For being <laughs> hawked. yeah um but for some of these businesses that's the only business model they know and another piece that we've um spoken about in the past is that 
it has it's kind of an all-inclusive they have all-inclusive services so you can do jewelry repair you can have it be um, redesigned you can do a completely new design um, personalized jewelry right. and that today when we are such um, educated informed and you know selfish buyers where we want everything to be perfect for us that this offers a huge opportunity to do that right and to and to do it with the best experts in the, in the world right and selling too right if and you're gonna to sell, sell if you have a piece of jewelry that you want to sell I, do, I honestly don't know because that's not really what uh, I don't really participate in that side of it so I don't know what the best method is for reselling jewelry mm -hmm. but there again you're you're in this highly concentrated market where you can go to four or five different places that buy and get a, at least a, a range and get an idea of what the resale value is which is not you know that much different than having four or five different real estate brokers come in and tell you what your home is worth you can mm -hmm. get, get a range by doing it that way so there is a convenience to doing that yeah. that being said you know they're most of them are going to lowball you because they have nothing to lose if, right. if you don't want to sell but at least you can get an idea of the range so that's another component of 47th street for the consumer to be honest i knew not that i didn't even know what the diamond district was until erica was explaining this about the, the prospect of having you on i lived in new york for four years and i didn't even know that there was a diamond district in the city but uh, I'm not in the market for a lot of diamonds, as we spoke about. But this has been incredible. I feel like I can go out there and buy a diamond right now. Great. I can't actually, but I, uh, <laughs> I would love the opportunity to. Um, but any closing thoughts on uh, the diamond district? Cut, clarity, color, anything for us before we Yeah, there's, uh, you know, technology touching everything. There's been a, a really fascinating uh, transition in the diamond world in that technology has now advanced to the point where they can create a synthetic diamond mm -hmm. that has the exact same chemical composition and prop optical properties as a natural diamond. That's insane. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah. So it's something that's relatively new um, and it's hard to determine what the market is going to be for it. Yeah. yeah. The, the fundamental distinction in terms of value is that original diamonds were all created at least three billion years ago yeah. uh, between 150 and 250 miles below the surface of the earth that's where the pressure was high enough yeah. to crystallize carbon and graphite uh -huh. and that's what diamond is it's crystallized carbon right. and then you know over eons of time volcanic activity brought these uh, rough stones to the surface and that's how they're, they're mined and discovered so it's kind of like to me a the difference between a, an original Shelby Cobra, which is worth a million dollars, or a replica, yeah. which mechanically it's basically the same, but mm -hmm. one's a million dollars and one's a hundred thousand. And then one other tip, um, when we're talking about one carat D flawless as being the standard, mm -hmm. uh, there are these demarcations in terms of weight that the, the, the price really shifts. Yeah. So there's a hundred points in a carat. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 0.99, which is just one point shy of one, one carat. carat yeah. It's say if it, if the wholesale price is twenty thousand for D flawless one carat, it's going to be about fifteen thousand for one point less, just mm. because it doesn't make that that oh. one mm. one carat mark. It's yeah. a five thousand dollar difference. Yeah, 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 and so that's and a the, hot tip. So we're save some money. <laughs> yeah, and that's again, a really hot tip, and no one else is going to know. You can say, oh, it's a carat. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's it's a, it could be a real cost saver because yeah. if you don't really care, yeah. if it's .99 or or one oh oh, you're yeah. gonna save a lot of money. Oh so that is my basic recommendation if you're looking for you know as far as a starting point to get the best value, 
Yeah, I would say an SI1 certified stone, SI1 eye color 0.99, that's going to be the best quality that you're going to get, but you do have to factor in the cut of, of the stone. So I think it comes down to a formula, and forgive me if this is impersonal, which is how much do you love her and how much can you afford to spend? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Those are the drives. Yeah. That will drive your purchase. That's a great place to end. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. I My really pleasure. appreciate it. I You made it to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, follow us on Instagram and Snapchat if you don't already, and stay tuned, Snap Listings fam. We're going places.